Hi, this is Howard Jacobson, and I'm really honored and thrilled to be joined today on the phone by Dr. Anna Negron. Hello, Dr. Anna. Hello, Howard. Hi. So you are a, a, a family physician in private practice in the Philadelphia area, is that right? That's correct. Um, and you also uh, have a website called greensonabudget.org, which has lots of great resources, writing, recipes, interviews. Um, and interestingly, also, you, um, you, you volunteer at a clinic where you provide uh, counsel, nutritional counseling and education for people who don't have health insurance for, for low-income folks. That's right. We service people without health insurance. So, I mean, that, that's, I think that's how I found you, um, uh-huh. is someone, you know, was talking about the work you were doing. And, you know, when I think about plant-based eating and, and eating nutritious foods, I generally, my mind generally tends to go to the whole foods crowd, right? <laughs> Upper yeah. middle class folks who can afford a $200, um, you know, grocery bill every couple of days for mm-hmm. all the organics and the fancy stuff. And so it really intrigued me. To, to hear about the work you were doing in a, you know, in a much more sort of mainstream way. So, so I'd love to begin by asking you, uh, how did you get here? What was your journey to, to plant-based nutrition? Well, in terms of my personal life, it's been, you know, 25, 27 years. But in terms of br- bridging the gap between my personal life and my professional life, that happened slowly without me even noticing until one day in 2003. Should I tell you? <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's yeah, let's back up a little bit. So you said you have you have been eating a, a whole food plant based diet, and I'm, I'm, uh, those are my words. So I'm not sure how you would characterize yes. it. Yes, that's good. Um, for 25 years, um, how did how did you start doing that? Where did where, that's that's a long time. Most people I know. You know, have have been eating this way maybe since 2000, and more mm. more more people. You know, 2005, 2007. So you started in the the 80s. How how did you right. st- stumble yeah. upon this? Well, you know, it became really apparent that we are living a wasteful kind of uh, you know food uh, program that we are hurting the environment. So those are my, those were my feelings. You know, I started to really become aware. I mean, Diet for a New America, you know, um, was perhaps one of the books that influenced me the most. And I just started to research some more. Um, So it was the waste, the suffering, the violence, and, uh, you know, the health um, was really not a big part of it until a little later. Um, you know, and when one day I decided that I was not going to cook any more meat, I just talked to my family and said, this is the deal. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, my then husband said, fine. And my son, who was eight years old, he said, so why exactly are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> and I was very clear that this was only going to be in the house, that, you know, everybody was free to do whatever they wanted somewhere else, but that I was not going to cook in the house anymore. And when I explained that to him, in the simple words that I've explained to you in terms of the waste and the suffering and the violence and and all that, uh, he said, that's good enough for me. <laughs> and uh, the next thing I know, I got a call from one of the parents of one of his friends. He was going, he was over 
you know, at a at a play date, <laughs> and they said, "What do I give Jason?" He says he's a vegetarian. <laughs> uh. So you know, this is um, this is what happened. So at, at this point, were you already a doctor or a medical student? Yes. No, I've been in practice for 40 years, Howard. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Um, so you originally, it sounds like you came to it from a position that I would characterize as ethical vegan. Yes. Sort of looking, looking at the, the ethics, at the environmental impact. I know a lot of ethical vegans, um, and you know, many of whom have been vegan for, for many years. Very, very few of them started eating healthy. Mm. <laughs> uh, did you did you just start by cutting out animal products, or did you did you already incorporate some of the the dietary uh, habits that you that you adopt and promote now? Um, no, I think you know I ate a pretty much mainstream diet, uh, meaning you know with all the kinds of you know pizza and and. Uh, and meats and the like. It was really, you know, and it was first meat and then eventually cheese, you know, but pretty soon. So it, it was a transition that was really easy in the sense of I decided to do it. But in terms of the learning curve, it took me on a pretty long journey of really learning. And then the excitement about bringing that into my practice, you know, where I realized that food is how we got into this pickle of, you know, chronic illness and obesity and all that, and how I could really re-energize my professional um, experience hmm. and, and become really excited again about practic- practicing medicine. So, so at some point you were, you were, medicine seemed a little bit stale or unexciting to you? Yes, in 2003, I remember distinctly, you know, just one more prescription for a, chron- for a list of chronic conditions, and I just said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. So I, I brought in some, some oats, you know, to a patient, because I would, I would say, eat more fruits, vegetables, you know, the same thing that they tell you to say <laughs> to patients. And, you know, they would go their merry way and come back, and nothing had changed. So I said, you know, maybe I'll bring some real food <laughs> you know um and <laughs> i'm just i'm just imagining because every every doctor i know has this cabinet filled with with uh with drug samples oh yes right well, so you clear those out and you put in oatmeal that is not funny yes exactly what i'm doing at the clinic right now and we'll get into that in a second but yes what i got i brought the cooked oats and with a little bit of quinoa and blueberries, and everybody loved it, and including my colleagues, they said, oh, this is delicious. What is it? <laughs> and, you know, I, I, light bulbs started to go off, and then I brought some kale and garlic and the same thing. So it really, even though I was um, servicing people or serving people with of low income, my colleagues, you know, in their affluent echelon were also as ignorant and food illiterate um, of the foods that I thought, you know, were important for our health. Mm. So the next week, you know, I bought bought a lot of pots and pans and things, and I started the cooking workshops, which I've been doing once a month for 10 years. Wow. So you've been practicing for 40 years. Yes. You've been eating... <clears throat> excuse me, more or less plant-based for, for 25. Yes. Do, you, do you think there was something about your medical education that actually made it harder for you to see the health benefits of nutrition? 
um, what nutrition education in medical school? <laughs> 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 yes, of course. Um, but even the little bit that the residents in family medicine get today is really not supported by a culture of food in medicine, you know, as a way to prevent or treat disease. It's just like a, you know, icing on the cake. It's not really mainstream. I do teach family medicine residents the, the role of food in medicine, and I, um, and I see them struggling, you know, with the excitement that they get when we talk and when they're back in their routine. It's not supported. So, so in 2003, when you'd finally hit hit the wall, one one mm. more prescription. Um, so, what what was your evidence that eating a whole food, plant based diet was actually going to help? Because you know, you you mentioned Diet for a New America, which um, for a lot of people was the watershed book that got them to become an ethical vegan. But for most people, the watershed book that got them to go whole food, plant-based for health reasons was the China study, which wouldn't come out for another year and a half. Mm -hmm. What were you, what did you know? What had you seen either personally or in, in medical research that led you to believe um, what was, what was then and still is a medical heresy that you can reverse and cure diabetes, that you can prevent heart disease, that you can get rid of all these other symptoms by, by the, your diet. What led you to even consider that as a possibility? You know, not too much. I had been peripherally aware, you know, of, of some of this, but I was more aware of the damage that was being done and the kinds of foods that people were eating. I mean, the, the obesity, the... Um, the fast food and the ignorance about the foods that I thought were, you know, the nourishing foods. So it was really something that then brought me to educate myself more. So I really didn't have much evidence. You know, right in front of me, I had probably ignored many of the publications or many of the articles that linked diet and, and health. I, I was trained to really ignore them, you know, and and go to the to the statins or the blood pressure medications or the you know acid reflux medicines um, and how to dose them and how to keep people on them for life. So I really started to see what had been in front of me all the time, and I, it was like a new a new window opened up for me, and I started to find you know in circulation and JAMA and you know all of the mainstream medical journals the literature that I needed to support, mm. to support, you know, a, a more responsible way to practice medicine. Mm. So it's, it's, it seems like it came to you almost as a, a gestalt, as an intuition, that but, this must be the way things work. Yeah, by the back door. <laughs> so I, I, um, you, know, you have a, uh, an accent. Um, tell me where you, mm -hmm. grew, where you grew up. Uh, thank you. I was born and raised and and educated in Puerto Rico. Okay. So so I'm I'm curious whether, you know, you 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 take what I would consider a holistic approach or at least you were able to uh to free yourself from the, some of the blinders of of modern medicine. Do you think that um that there's there's something in in sort of a a curanderismo heritage that that predisposed you to think that way or am I just making a an ignorant cultural assumption? 
Yeah, not a curanderisma, but really, you know, what I, when I think about it, it's more like not being from here or from there. It's uh, being on the edge and and having an an ability to see um, what's what's there uh, from the other shore. Mm. So it's a coming and going. You know, I am. I've lived here half my life. I've lived my the other half of my life in Puerto Rico, and I go back and forth. And it's that which probably a lot of people have when they go away on vacation and they come back. They see things with fresh eyes. Uh-huh. So it's it's that, you know, and, and always feeling sort of dislocated or, you know, out not quite fitting into the mainstream. And that, I think, has been a saving grace for me in terms of really not wanting ever to be in the mainstream. Uh-huh. Rebellious. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Okay, so 2003, you, you traded some of the prescriptions for quinoa and blueberries and oatmeal, and you started finding evidence in medical journals. What did you see in your patients that, that made you realize how powerful your brand of medicine could be? Well, in the, what I saw was that those gatherings once a month, which were initially once, one month in Spanish and one month in English, were filled with people. Twenty people came and everybody had chopping boards and knives and everybody chopped and the smells of cilantro and onion and, you know, just wafted through the corridors and the clinic door would, the, the door would open and people would say, what's cooking? Oh my gosh, this smells so good. And we were not using even a, a hot stove. You know, we were chopping fresh ingredients. We were making a rainbow salad with napa cabbage and, um, and cilantro and, you know, all kinds of, uh, colorful whole foods. We're not, we were not even cooking. <laughs> so, you know, it was the, it was the fact that people kept coming and I did not vary the recip- the recipes for a couple of years. We just made the oats, the quinoa and the blueberries or ah. another fruit. And the rainbow salad, you know, with different greens and different colorful vegetables, and people kept coming. And then I would occasionally get somebody who hadn't seen me for a year, two years, and they would say, Doctora, look at me! And they had lost 20, 30 pounds just really having come to, you know, a food literacy course, basically, you know, a sensory experience with food. Oh, and I, I love that you kept it so simple. Simple. That's why it's called Greens on a Budget, also, because... I kept hearing, especially from the wealthy elite, like you say, that it's expensive. And I think we're addicted, Howard, to convenience foods. So if you trade convenience junk with convenience high-end products, you're paying for somebody to wash it, chop it, and bag it for you. And that's not the way to really transition to a whole plant diet. It's really by, you know, just washing it and chopping it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And then I have found that, you know, the $35 a day that somebody could spend on food becomes $35 a week once you have some staples, you know, and that really is one of the biggest misconceptions that eating healthy is expensive. Hmm. So what's what's sort of, um, you know, medical... Uh, effects did you see? What what uh, did you know? Did people start going off their medicines? Did they yes. their symptoms go away? Yes, 
yes, all of the above. Lower insulin, stop um, acid reflux medicines, blood pressure normalizes, um, people lost weight, you know, and there was a glow in their face, and they started to come up with symptoms or lack of symptoms that they, they and I had not really anticipated, like, I am pooping three times a week, three times a day. It's so good. I, I don't have to strain. I have, I don't have constipation anymore. Sexual libido, much improved. Um, energy, you know, I don't know, now I don't have to, they would say, you know, give orders. I am, I'm there with the workers, you know, cleaning the, cleaning houses. I, and I feel great. So it was these kinds of, you know, um, heaven-sent signs that kept me going because, believe me, from my colleagues, you know, I did not get much encouragement. <laughs> In fact, they would say, oh, you know, that people don't change or, you know, they, they still need their medicine. What are you doing taking people off medicines? Hmm. Did, so what what, did the, what was that like to, uh, was that, you know, sort of in... Uh in, in in the clinic or in hospitals, like where did you, where did you where did you start to feel maybe a little bit marginalized? Um, you know, yes, that was familiar to me. That was familiar. I mean, I had always been in, interested in what people did in their free time, so I would always be late, you know, with my patients. I would always be asking them, "How's how's your day? You know, how are you feeling? How are you eating? How are you sleeping?" So, you know, I was always like, oh, she's always late. Oh, she's be here at the clinic. Oh, my gosh. So we're going to have to, you know, so it wasn't really different for me. So you're, you're sort of the HMO's nightmare, right? You, 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 <laughs> you don't get them in and out in 10 minutes with a, uh, with a, with a circled code for their, for their treatment and their drugs. That's right. In fact, even in the clinic, you know, when I first started um, over, yeah, 10 years ago, I said, you know, I'm not going to schedule patients on your schedule, I'm going to give myself, you know, um, an hour for the for the new patients, and they just said, "What?" <laughs> so, so you know, I'm more efficient now, Howard. I'm more efficient. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you, uh, you you volunteer at a clinic. You give patients an hour. You ask them about their lives. You take time. You show them. Can you can you make a living as as a doctor? Is it is it possible to? Uh, to give that kind of care and and be sustainable. Well, you know, I um, I volunteer at the clinic, so I am now I have enough that I can do that, and I have my private practice where I am really hoping to influence the affluent, because mm -hmm. I find them very vulnerable to food illiteracy themselves. You know, with the high end factory foods that they are eating. So and and because I think that they spread a lot of misconceptions with the voice of authority, you know, of, of being well off. Mm. Um, I'm interested in reaching that group and, you know, having them be uh, spokespersons for a more, you know, reasonable way to use our resources. So, yes, I mean, it's a, it's a balance, but I think you can do it. So so when people come to you for, for uh, to be your, you know, private practice, physician, are they already convinced that they want to eat this way, or do they just sort of wander in not knowing what they're getting into? It runs the gamut, and here it, I am not replacing their family physician, so it's like a consultation service. You know, I, 
they come in and often they come in having tried everything else and maybe um, taking $100 worth of supplements, you know, a month um, with no evidence that it's helping them. So, uh, and others, you know, come really because they they are just tired of taking medicines or checking their blood sugars or, you know, feeling very, very sick. So I, I get people that are either healthy and interested in learning more or very sick and really wanting to have some um, more natural intervention to their to their disease. I mean, I see people with cancer, with heart disease, with diabetes. So, no, some of them come and say, okay, I'm not ready, this is not for me, and they go away, and that's okay. Um, others really stick with it and then embark on a food literacy uh, you know, learning curve. Um, most people don't know whole foods. Mm. So, so with with uh, with the uh, affluent elites, what mm-hmm. what works? What what do you do? Uh, I'm sure you know you've tried lots of things over the years, and you've learned uh, by trial and error. What what are your best practices for getting people to shift to a healthier diet? The first thing that I do is I go on a virtual tour of their kitchen because that removes the focus from them to you know, what they what their food bank is at home. And we get an inventory of what they have in the house. And then I ask them to really evaluate it with me. And they see that they have an over-representation of factory foods, you know, the processed foods. And the freezer is filled with meats and, you know, other animal parts. And their drawers are filled with cheese. And, you know, um, so when they see that, and I say, so where are the greens? Where are the cruciferous vegetables? When was the last time you ate Brussels sprouts or kale or Napa cabbage or daikon radish? They see it themselves. So it's that first uh, visit, you know, where we really are on the same page. I don't start by telling them what to eat. I give them a picture of what they're eating. Huh. And I connect that with the way they're feeling. Um so that really helps, um, you know. And from then on, I work with people as as they are interested in in taking the next step. It's very difficult when one person in the family is the one aware and interested, and you know the rest of the family, especially if there's other adults or teenagers, that really is very hard. Um, and I try to support the person, you know, however I can, and it's an individual an individual tailored approach. But people, you know, in in two weeks, a patient I saw just uh, a month ago, you know, lost two inches around her waist and can walk a little bit more freely. And that, it, that in itself becomes the impetus, you know, to keep going. Mm-hmm. At, a, at, a, at a certain point, motivation and self-discipline will will run out of steam like uh, like the booster rockets. Mm-hmm. Right. If you, I, I, I find that also that people who start getting great results, um, you know, I have a neighbor who's been uh, with my help has been eating plant based for about three, three and a half months now, and he's gone from fifty size fifty two waist to size forty four, and whatever what he says, what everybody tells him is, "Wow, you look great," and I could never do that. I don't have the self discipline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he keeps saying, "I, I don't have any self discipline. It's it tastes good, and, and I get I love the results." Yes, it's it's really important. I, I help people 
deal with, you know, family and friends who might be uncomfortable with the new relationship they have to have with them. Hmm. What, what do um, you, what, how do you help them? Well, for example, you know, go out to, di- to dinner with your friends for the company, not for the food. Um, you know, tell them it doesn't agree with me as opposed to I'm on a diet, mm. which is what often people try to say. Or, you know, this is not for everyone, but it's working for me. You know, kinds of things that would just personalize their journey and still say, you know, I like you, I love you, but I don't have to live the way you live. So we cannot really get cut off from most of our family and friends, although some people are toxic and we do have to eliminate them from our life. Uh Boy, you really are a holistic physician giving people... (laughs) Food literacy, cooking skills, and and uh, assertiveness training. Yes, it's sense. really <laughs> that's true. And I don't interpret dreams, but I ask people to pay attention to their dreams. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, just a few weeks ago, I took a, a group of select group of some of my patients on a cooking retreat. So we spent four days cooking and eating, and that again give, gave me another dimension of what we really need to do. We cannot just give isolated advice. We need to make it part of a living experience. The people who you mentioned, you know, run out of steam from the motivation and and the way of life, often, you know, they are at a landing, and we need to up the ante in some way, you know, and uh, bring some new excitement to that. It can't just be you know, do this for the rest of your life. It has Mm -hmm. to be an organic, growing, delicious, and uh, a life journey. How important is the the community aspect of what you provide, that people see other people doing it and it's a regular thing, as opposed to just, you know, sort of one-on-one, here are the skills you need? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, the, the people who come to the clin- to the cooking workshops, which, by the way, are in the basement of a church. I have the key to a church. I'm so <laughs> grateful, so grateful. They, they bring their cousins. They bring their children. Even two-year-olds, babies come in, and they sit at the table, and, you know, they wash their hands up to their elbows to be able to help us. And um, every time they touch their nose, they're, they have to go wash their hands again. So there's really this, you know, um, community, yes, interaction. Children push buttons on their blender. They pluck grapes from the stems. They <laughs> walk around with bowls so that everybody can, you know, pour in their chopped cilantro or onions or whatever. So it's, a, it, it's an activity that people start doing, they come because it's community. You're right. You said it. Hmm. So let's, let's, let's talk about the, your, your work with, uh, with low-income families. In, in, in what ways is it similar? In what ways is it different from your work with the affluent? Well, it's very different in the sense that they have perhaps come to experience affluence in the wrong way. You know, there's a there's too many calories of processed foods available to them. Even though they have the produce junction or the farmer's market, what they have at every, you know, two or three 
in a block, in a city block, are fast food joints. So that's really very hard, especially when the children are being fed the same kind of unhealthy food in the schools. That is really the, the, one of the hurdles that I have not been able to, you know, reconcile with. Um, so the families have a difficult time getting their middle school and adolescents, you know, to get on with the program of eating healthier foods because they're going to be singled out at school uh, bringing a lunch. And sometimes, you know, it's expensive to bring a lunch if you're already at school, you know, uh, paying for school. Mm-hmm. So um, the difference is really in the economics. You know, I, I try to help people um, evaluate how much did we spend in tonight's meal, you know, that's feeding 20 people. So it's really a, uh, numbers literacy. <laughs> huh. uh, yeah, so, you know, I bring the, the tab from the market and show them how much money uh, we spend. Um, uh, and I encourage people to, you know, to see how much they're spending on junk food versus healthy foods. Um, so it's, um, you know, I mean, it, this is ongoing. You know, we may have to speak again. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it, it sounds yeah. like the, there's a lot more similarities than differences. In, there in are. The, in that, you know, there, we're, we're, all, we're all victims of nutritional misinformation, of um, highly processed, manipulated foods designed to keep us addicted. Um, mm-hmm. And it sounds, it sounds like maybe the, the difference is that the affluent have more choices. Um, yeah, they have more choices, but from, the, from a parallel universe of foods, you know, that is high fat, high sugar, high flour, it's really processed. It may cost them more, and because they're getting it from a high-end food store, they think it's, or because it's organic, um, you know, they think it's better. Mm-hmm. But a vegan cake is the same amount of calories as a regular cake. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and professionals, whether doctors, nurses, coaches, nutritionists, teachers, have become profession have become billboards for the food industry because they get information from the food industry as if it was education. And I know you've you've interviewed Michelle Simon on this topic. You know where people have. just you know, agree because that it's good because somebody with power is telling you. Hmm. Do Do you find that in some ways, um, poorer people are find that easier to believe? That sort of the because when I started working on Whole with with Dr. Yes. Campbell, I kept on not believing things. Like, how could that be? How could this be the policy? How could they be saying that? You know, I, I kind of had to. Um, rethink my sort of my faith in in civilization a yeah. little bit. I'm wondering if if folks who are you know at at, at the bottom of the so, the socioeconomic status ladder find it easier to believe that we're all being screwed in a way. They do. I a lot of the patients that I see at the clinic, Howard, are immigrants. So they their their experience with food early on in their lives was much different than the experience that they have now. <clears throat> so they can see that there's really, it, it doesn't make sense, but they are swimming in it. They cannot, they cannot 
get out of it, you know, because mm-hmm. the the food, the prevalence of the fast food is such that it, it has a pull and an attraction. But they know that they have, they know their vegetables. As opposed to the high-end, you know, the the wealthier people, the low-income people know their vegetables. It's mm. my experience. <laughs> so one other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, I've been looking at some research around decision-making and willpower um, that looks at socioeconomic differences and suggests that one, one of the reasons that poor people end up in more trouble, you know, getting, uh, getting into fights, committing crimes, cheating on things, is, not, is, is that their lives are more stressful, so they end up with, with decision fatigue and less resources available for, for self-control. Um, just because of the stresses of being poor, of having to decide, you know, a, a, a hundred times more things than people who have money, who for whom you know buying a snack here or, or a pair of shoes there isn't isn't a strain. Do you find that that people who are living close to poverty or who are really struggling um, have a harder time sticking to you know making good food decisions? Well, you're taking me to. Um, an area that's not really been my, you know, that's not my expertise. Um, I think everybody that I see is making poor choices. Mm. Um, I mean, crime is no less prevalent in the in white collar than than in poor people. It's just different kind of crime. The decisions that people are making with their children, you know, the the drugs and all that. So, I don't know that I can really that I'm prepared to speak mm. about that. Yeah, it's 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 almost as if we have a society in which, you know, being being rich conveys so much less of an advantage than it would have in some, <laughs> in some other culture because of the foods that are marketed to the rich are are destroying them, just as just as quickly as the foods that are that are sold to the poor. Yes. I mean, with all the technology and science advantage that we have, we still are at the bottom of the developed countries in terms of a lot of diseases and life expectancy. Hmm. So something is not adding up. Right. You know, we know how to do things, Howard. Science and technology tells us how to do things. But the why do things and what to do in certain circumstances is not quite the same thing. In fact, just the opposite. You know, we can we can make we can fry Twinkies, right? But <laughs> did we? You know, do, do we do that? And why do we do that? That takes us on a different. You know, it's a metaphysical question. It's beyond the physics of how to do something. And we're very good at how to do things in developed countries, and in particular in this country. But we're not very good at asking ourselves, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And that needs to be part of the education of children in schools. But since I'm not a, you know, a teacher, an educator, I incorporate that in my medical practice and in these you know, cooking workshops and in every visit with every one of my patients. 
Right. It's it's amazing that your practice is essentially filling in deficits <laughs> in, that, that that really should be taught yes. in kindergarten. Yes. And yes, throughout school. Right. And every one of us can be can do that. We we need to unplug a little bit and look to our right and our left and engage with another person, another child, another adult, a friend. You know, we should all be our teachers and students. Yeah, I'm think I'm thinking about I'm just I'm just thinking back to my own education experience and the sort of thousands and thousands of hours I spent every year on you know, differential equations and, the, you know, the history of 13th century France and things that, you know, I'm not knocking them. You know, they're great yeah. human achievements. But just in terms of priorities, I, th- I think maybe, you know, learning how to be assertive, learning how to read a label, learning how to cook a, a healthy meal, they, 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 might have had, they might have come first. I, I think I'd, uh, I'd be a lot uh, healthier today if, uh, if I'd had that kind of head start. Yeah, I would I would say that it's like a priority priority or proportions rather because I think we need to know where we come from and where we're headed, but we also need to live in this world today and the skills. I see two generations right now that don't know how to cook. You know, the parents of the adolescents they don't know how to cook, except for like I mentioned earlier. You know, many of the people, many of the immigrants who have cooked all their lives, who would have to walk far and long and, you know, and only on special occasions for a burger or a, um, or a pizza. Most of the affluent right now don't use their kitchens except to heat up something in a microwave. So mm-hmm. this, you know, we need to know about history but you are absolutely right. The sensory experience of, you know, knowing how to combine ingredients and create some food that's tasty. Um, man. So do, <laughs> I have, I'm a loss, at a loss for words. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Um, so, so your patients who are successful or, you know, compliant around mm-hmm. um, whole, whole plant nutrition, um, are they cooking the same three or four meals all the time? You know, the rainbow salad, the the oatmeal, or do they do do, do many of them sort of branch out, get cookbooks, and um, you know, start developing a wider variety? Yeah, excellent point. Because I discourage people from getting you know cookbooks, and I encourage <laughs> people to just get to know a few. I have on my website just like 10 recipes, you know, and I say just get bored with them and then start to include different ingredients in lieu of, you know, the ones that I have there. But, you know, know how to make a soup, know how to make a salad, know how to make rice and beans, know how to make, and then branch out a little bit. And for special occasions, there's always the Internet or, you know, a cookbook or a friend or whatnot. But I think we really sometimes want to, um, spread ourselves thin, you know, and know too much superficially and not something in depth. So mm-hmm. I want somebody to live with a salad, you know, for a few years before they get bored. You know, include different greens, include different beans. There's a bean for every letter of the alphabet. <laughs> Don't stop with garbanzo beans, you know, azuki and 
um, you know, all the way to, I don't know, I've got to come up with one yeah. with a Z. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but greens. And I I make it a, a lesson to have people know their cruciferous vegetables, you know, from the broccoli and the cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, Napa cabbage, kale, collards, arugula, daikon radish. You know, they should rattle 10 every time we get together uh-huh. so that they know that when they go to the supermarket, they, you know, they get a specimen from that group. And the reasons why we really also, you know, I tell them we're scientists here. We're not ever going to say they say. They're gonna, you know, we're going to say I know. <laughs> um, I mean, these are, yes, yeah, very small ways, and as you see, we've, we've, we're having fun in this conversation. You know, it's really not about beating people down. It's about enjoying the bounty and the, the sensory thing, which is eating. Right. It's just, yeah, as I kind of go back over what we've talked about, the, the underlying theme seems to be this is just a more joyful way to be on the earth. Yes. Right and to then. belong to the earth, you know, to belong to the earth, to not be separate from it. Hmm. Do, are you involved at all with uh, with any sort of initiatives around gardening, around growing food? Uh, yes and no. I mean, the 17 beds um, around the clinic, and many of them bring produce once a week, and... So, but no, I mean, the fact that I can cook doesn't mean that I can garden. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I do have uh, utmost respect, and I try to link people to it, and the Chester County Food Bank, which is the food bank from the area where I am living, um, you know, has made, uh, makes a donation of whole plant foods every week to the clinic, because mm. we've asked, because we've asked. And I'm trying to eliminate the breads and the pastries and the, you know, day-old thing that the supermarkets for a tax credit, you know, give to the poor. I think that is unconscionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so, when I think about, you know, really belonging to the earth, there, there's just a few layers separating us from, from the earth. It's not, you know, it seems like we're, we're sort of maybe a, you know, a lost cause as a species. But when you start eating for, straight from the earth, and then, you know, in my experience, when kids start gardening and they see things mm-hmm. grow out of soil from seeds, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard, it's hard not to, to see that as a little miraculous. Yes, to be excited. Exactly. So, so one of the things I tell people, you know, one of the little exercises that we do is really look at foods that grow in, on the earth from below the earth to above it. So I say, you know, roots and bulbs and tubers and then leafy greens and then stems and then the babies of plants, which are the fruits, which house the, the seeds. It doesn't matter if they're sweet or not. And then the, all the seeds, you know, the grains, the nuts, the seeds, the legumes. So, and that's again and again. We, we practice that again and again. It's not a new lesson. It's a lesson in depth. Mm-hmm. Well, it's almost it's it sounds almost like like church. <laughs> like you, you, you kind of you know you don't you don't get, you don't get a new morality next week than you got last week. You just you just go because you you like you know you you need to keep hearing it. That's right, and we need to keep like fleshing it out. You know, what does it look like in my life? I think the platitudes can just you know get blown off 
um, we have to inhabit them. And, you know, what does that look like in my life? I mean, that's why when, you know, potlucks, you know, they invite me to potlucks and with a specific reason of, you know, looking at the foods and, and helping them decipher, you know, what's in them. Um, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. That sounds wonderful. So bef- before I let you go, do you um, do you see private patients just uh, locally in the in the Philadelphia area, or can people work with you long distance? Yes, I have not. I have worked with people long distance very very little. I like the face to face contact, uh-huh. um, and you know, but people travel you know thirty miles, um, so that's not exactly local. Okay, so any anyone who's a uh, Phillies fan, yes, <laughs> sure. I mean, and there is a lot of good information that is you know f- free for just you know looking at the website. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the website again is greensonabudget.org. Correct. Okay, great. Yeah. And I've I've really been been enjoying that website, and I've also been enjoying some of your writing on I think it's was it food is medicine. dot <laughs> yeah. org. Um, Thank you. Just you know, I love this idea of no recipes because when you mm-hmm. think about it, our grandparents, you know, how many cookbooks did somebody own? Mm-hmm. You know, most people had none. Um, yeah. And it was you know, cook, cooking was was a much more organic skill. It was like making making a bed or, or you know, you did nothing, everything didn't come with a set of steps. And that makes people. Uh, the complication, you know, that we create around cooking makes people shy away from it. Anything can be made complicated. I think one of the things that I have really focused on is making making it simple. <laughs> I love that. Thank you, Howard. I'm I'm, I'm writing that down. <laughs> that's that, that's that's a, that feels like it's a bumper sticker or a T-shirt that I want to own one day. <laughs> It's so true that, and you know, and, and in our in our market economy, making things complicated is often a good way to make money, because yes. you can you can tur- turn things into dozens and dozens of products, um, and people need to buy the additional products in order to use the first ones. Yeah, um, I think that's why the affluent are so vulnerable, because they think that it has to com- it has to be complicated. It has to come from a guru. It has to come from you know, somewhere they have lost the connection with the sam- with themselves within. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and so um, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I, th- I thought I would enjoy it because I'd be talking to a uh, you know a, a credentialed medical doctor, and I find that I'm really enjoying it because I, I feel like I'm talking to a poet. So I, f- I feel like there's a lot of uh, of grace and beauty in the way you see the world and, and in the way you share your vision with, with others. So I, I just want to thank you so much for, for taking the time. I feel really uplifted. Those are beautiful words. Thank you, Howard. All right. Be well. You too. <laughs>